You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Welcome to the Real Vision Presents podcast. This week, we have a special episode. We're stitching together two parts of two interviews where Roy Sabag and Barry Silbert broke down Grayscale Bitcoin Trust's Drop Gold campaign. Looking at each side of the argument, Silbert supplies the argument for Bitcoin and Sabag provides the defense for gold. They debate questions like, are gold investors living in the past? What actually is Bitcoin? And what's the end game here? I know this is a little different this week, but we hope you enjoy. For Real Vision, I'm Drew Bissett. I really was. I really wanted to get you back just to pick your brains to find out where we are. You know, this is we're all on this journey, and it's a it's a long journey. We kind of think we know where we're going, but we don't really know. So let's start with where you think the journey's going, and then we'll kind of back up to where we are now right. and the kind of stuff that you're looking at. Right. Well, so. Um I think uh, well, let's let's go back the, for the past uh, I guess four and a half years. So um, in 2014, um, I would imagine kind of the asset class was probably only worth a couple billion dollars. Uh, today, Bitcoin is I think worth about 125 billion. Um, <clears throat> I would imagine that there were only a handful of exchanges. In fact, your investment trust is worth. Two, yeah. two billion. The same yeah, size so as Bitcoin the entire trust. Bitcoin market. <laughs> Indeed. Um, yeah, that's true. Um, and uh, well done you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good to be first mover, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, so there were probably only a handful of exchanges that you could trade off of. Uh, there was no institutional involvement in the space. Um, when you know Bitcoin, you know, was discussed on um, you know kind of popular media, it was always described as you know tulip bubble Ponzi scheme. So still quite a bit of that, I guess. And then you know you fast forward, and to, it was also the criminal element. It was always you know was, yeah, it's I guess the currency of criminal. Silk Road probably yeah, I guess Silk Road probably existed at that point, and yeah. there was this perception that Bitcoin was only only used you know by uh, by criminals. And so you know fast forward to today, it's it's just it's it's different. I think. It's, I think the asset class, like the asset class, is here to stay. The asset class, as defined as um, digital assets, um, which would include both digital currencies and these and these kind of token investments. So the asset class is here to stay. Um, I think it's um, now being looked at as potentially uh, a, a, a an important part of a diversified portfolio. Um, there are uh, thousands of 
uh, digital currencies and tokens that are out there. Um, most of them, um, we'll t I'm sure we'll talk more about, you don't want to touch, but there's thousands of ways to kind of play the asset class. And the infrastructure, the infrastructure, you know, comparing it, you know, then versus today, um, you have custody solutions now, like institutional grade custody solutions. You have trading software. Um, you have, you know, data and analytics. You have fantastic, uh, you know, kind of media editorial coverage. And so um, it's, I think the asset class is really ready for the next phase, which, um, you know, it seems to me is institutional money moving into it. We've seen hedge funds dabbling. We've seen family offices dabbling. But the pension funds and the endowments and the insurance companies and the central banks and all the deep pools of capital haven't really touched the asset class yet. And I think that that's, that, that's next. Do you not think it needs a clearer use case for them? Because there's so much theoretical use case. I mean, you and I were just talking off camera. I mean, everybody we know involved is investing in companies who have use cases. And it's kind of in that dark period of everything's being developed, nothing's really come to market yet. What do you think about the use case for all of this? Or or does it just become a trading asset? So we, uh, as a digital currency group, um, uh, my company, we've invested in 145 companies now. And um, so we're the most active investor in the space. And so we have pretty good visibility um, and insight into kind of what's, what's working and what's not working. And I continue to believe um, that the number one use case is speculation right now. And, and, and that is not a bad thing in that... One, look, I think Bitcoin is going to, um, controversial opinion here, is going to displace gold over the next couple decades in terms of the role that gold plays in a, in a portfolio. Um, we will come back to that. Yes, I, yeah, I'm sure we will. Um, but, but separate from kind of the story value kind of gold um, play, I think that um, in order for Bitcoin and digital currency to provide the utility that people are excited about from a, a cross-border payment perspective, remittance perspective, you know, all of the um, all the uh, all the um, um, uh, friction that could be eliminated by the free movement of money around the world, it, it's not possible unless the asset class, the size of the asset class is larger, unless there's more volume and velocity in the on-ramps, the off-ramps. So initially. The number one use case is speculation. As the market cap grows, you have more, more liquidity going in and out of different fiat currencies, and eventually you'll have the ability to operate you know, as an individual or as a, or as a business exclusively in Bitcoin and digital currency and completely eliminate or bypass the middleman and all the friction and all the cost. But none of that becomes possible. You, don't, you, can't, you can't create a better financial system that eliminates all the friction and middlemen when you only have a $125 billion asset class that trades $5 billion a day. It's just not big so, enough. So, and that's an interesting point. So you think that, that speculation is one of the good ways to build the It's the only way. It's the enabler. It's the, you, it's the flywheel effect. You, it has to grow in value. And as it grows in value, it becomes more interesting as a tradable asset. And as it becomes more interesting as a tradable asset, you get the derivatives and you get the futures and you get the infrastructure. And then you have the liquidity. But the argument is, is what are you trading then? I, mean, I guess the answer is you're trading a future operability or something. You know, you're trading the future use 
case. I guess. Well, it's really kind of two, it's two things. One is if you if you buy into my hypothesis that Bitcoin is going to displace gold, mm-hmm. so you're trading into an opportunity. So there's eight trillion of gold, and then there's 125 billion of Bitcoin. So that's one play. And the other is is you're you're betting on the innovation. You're betting on the technology. You're betting on the community. You're betting on this new financial system that is going to get built over the next couple of decades. And that that investment thesis is a little. It's a it's a different analysis. The gold analysis is okay. What is the probability that it captures some of eight trillion? You know, and then you you discount that back, and you say, okay, it's you know, it's gonna five percent chance it's gonna happen that it's gonna capture twenty five percent. You could do the math; it's still a big number. Whereas if Bitcoin becomes the new finan- the the underpinnings of the new financial system, um, all of the value that gets tied up in Bitcoin as it's moving around the pipes, it's kind of like a, it's like a working capital analysis. And so, if there's five or ten or a hundred billion dollars tied up in the Bitcoin system as it's being used for all these use cases, you can make some assumption as to what the value of the asset class would would be at that point. And that's not even in, you know valuing. The, the blockchain use cases, you know, using the database for, you know, recording ownership around, you know, uh, digital rights and identity and all the crazy ideas that uh, we've invested in and you've heard about. So can you think of, therefore, of Bitcoin, it, thinking through your, your idea with gold and other areas is you need to think of it in terms of option value. What is the probability of it ending up replacing gold and then trying to impute that? My guess is you could probably apply some sort of option pricing model and come up with some fair value, whatever that means. Right, and and you know the small changes in your assumptions have a pretty meaningful impact on the, on the on the outcome. And look, and that's why you know that's why Bitcoin will move up or down five or ten percent in a week because the very small changes in money flows, very small changes in perception, changes you know kind of the probability of the that ultimate ultimate outcome. And so again, with gold as the as the in my opinion, kind of the number one uh, use case, um, or digital gold, um, eight trillion relative to one hundred twenty-five billion. I mean, for you to uh, you know double your money in gold over the next couple of decades, it's essentially a, it's a it's a bet against the dollar. I mean, it's a bet against kind of fiat currency. It's certainly, my belief that Bitcoin would perform well in that environment, but but really more importantly, if the world doesn't fall apart and if the value of fiat and the U.S. dollar doesn't collapse. Bitcoin could and should still perform really, really well because you're investing in this new financial system, this technology, this community, this 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 restructuring, rebuilding of the way that value moves around the world. And gold is gold is never going to have more utility. It's never going to. It's it's just going to, or not, be perceived as this store of value that you put in your portfolio that would perform well in periods of financial dislocation. You know, there's there used to be used to be, um, people used to trade the gold-silver ratio for a long time. And one of the reasons why silver often outperforms in certain times is because it has two two values. One is the precious metal value, and the other is the industrial value, because people use silver for a lot of stuff. And you kind of think of Bitcoin in the same way. It should hyper-outperform in that kind of magic scenario of devaluation of fiat currency, which probably at the end of the next recession we're going to see some format of, but also it has to price in the optionality of the future financial system, which as you go into a recession and you get to more extreme monetary policy, 
the probability explodes of having to choose a different outcome. That's a super smart way to look at it. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Because you know, one of the things I've been looking at just to, to cross our two worlds over is the Japanese now own most of their government debt. In the next recession, they'll probably own all of it, which is a debt jubilee. So what happens to the Japanese yen? Probably collapses. Right. Stock market probably goes to the moon because all the debt's gone. But well, I don't really know what that world is, but clearly it's been happening since biblical times, this kind of debt jubilee stuff. But in that environment, you kind of think that Bitcoin has its proof. That is the kind of environment that it is absolutely there for, because at the end of that, there's going to be a huge distrust in financial system, what asset is what, how can you just write off assets, and, right. and having blockchain and kind of the registration of assets and the storage of that data means that you actually get to own your stuff. Right, and, and there's been a little tastes of how Bitcoin may perform in, in um, you know, I, I guess kind of smaller examples. So Brexit, Bitcoin went up. Cyprus, Bitcoin went up. Grexit, Bitcoin went up. Um, China now. China, yeah. I mean, look at the past couple months, Bitcoin went up. And there's certainly plenty of examples where Bitcoin did, did not go up when certain things happened. You know, but, it, but it's interesting. You know, if you can think about, um, you know, a, there's an interesting generational wealth shift that's happening that I think um, many investors don't take the time to think about or analyze. And so, the, um, so the numbers that I saw, there's $68 trillion of wealth that will be handed down in the U.S. alone over the next 25 years. So $68 trillion. So the question is, as that value gets handed down from you know, boomers to Generation X and Y and millennials, <clears throat> where's that money going to go? I would, um, I would posit certainly that whatever is in gold, that percentage is not going to stay in gold. Younger generation investors do not view gold the same way that my parents or grandparents did. You know, I, I, I grew up, we weren't on the gold standard. I grew up in a period of time where we weren't in war and have to worry about kind of hiding value from, from the bad guys. And so, um, you know, of, of the 68 trillion, whatever it is, is in gold, you know, is it, is it, is it going to all go to Bitcoin? No, of course not. It'll go into FANG stocks and it'll go into Uber and things like that. But I, I do think that a younger generation investors are open to the idea that what they have been told or the parents have been told about the role that gold will play in a portfolio may not be right for the next couple of decades. And if you look at the biggest buyers of gold recently, who are the biggest buyers of gold right now? Central banks. Central banks. So what's interesting is gold bugs love to um, um, talk about how, how central banks are idiots. Central bankers are idiots. They don't, they, they, fiscal monetary policy, they don't know what they're doing. Yet, they, then they run around and talk about how smart they are for buying gold. Over the past five years, the, the, the largest increase in demand for gold has come from central banks. Well, you know, when, when the stuff does hit the fan, what do those central banks do with their gold? Do they keep on accumulating, or are they forced sellers? Not even forced sellers. Are they going to use that 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 value to prop up a currency? Or you know, I, I would I would I would guess that they're going to sell off their gold before they start selling off their ports and their airports and things like that. Okay, so that if the central bank demand disappears, um, we know in periods of recession and, and depression that people will sell their gold, um, you know, to to buy food and fund their lifestyles. And from an industrial use perspective, what's what's I, I didn't appreciate this until we launched this uh, this drop gold campaign. The use of gold in electronics is down 30% over the past 10 years. 
down 30%. So sale of smartphones are up like five or 10X and tablets and computers. So electronics are up hundreds of percent, yet the use of gold and electronics is down 30%. So the demand for gold is basically jewelry and it's central banks. What happens when the economy turns down? I just don't see where the buyer comes from. Yeah, although I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even have the argument about gold. Let's say gold is a fixed value, okay? Mm-hmm. Let's assume that it is. The argument, I think the better argument is, what is the value of cryptocurrency in that environment? And I think the generational thing, I did a piece about the pension crisis. Mm-hmm. So I think part of that 68 trillion is gonna get absolutely obliterated in the next recession because baby boomers are forced sellers before they even divest their assets to their kids. Right. They're gonna be forced sellers because they need to realize some liquidity to retire on. Well, it's just the standard retirement process. And I think that that kind of definancialization that we're gonna see part of is gonna put that younger generation even further away from public markets and all the stuff that we kind of grew up with. Right. And I think they're much more comfortable with private markets. I think the VC world and the P world and then the crypto world, the three worlds they, they kind of feel are more quantifiable and understandable to them. Right, and, and it's also much more accessible. If you think about um, you know, investing in a private company stock, you have to be a you know, high net worth investor. Um, and you typically only get access to kind of you know, deal flow that's kind of local to you. Where with this new asset class and these thousands of protocols and tokens and you know, different, different plays on the kind of the, the, the digital currency um, asset class, it's global and it's accessible to anybody who has a mobile phone. And that's exciting. And also, if you think about the, the, the set of opportunities the baby boomers had when they were in their 20s, right? They had the whole demographic wave in front of them and they had equities by 1982 were a P of seven in the S&P. They had interest rates at 15, 16%. So they had the best setup in history to accumulate wealth, right? Nobody's ever been given that before. You cut to the millennial now, they've got the most expensive stock market in all history. They've got a bond market that yields nothing. They've got real estate that is incredibly expensive that they can't buy. They have the absolute inverse of what the baby boomers have. Right. They have one thing, and that is crypto. Right. right. If there's one thing on a 30-year pension retirement horizon that has the probability of going to a huge number, it's this area. Right. That's the way I think of it. Right. Yes, there's a whole bunch of other investments and you could do VC and stuff like that. But if there's one option bet that could pay off the thousand X, it's this. Right. Right. And so if you're a millennial, you forget gold because, yes, sure, gold may double. It may double again, but it's right. not going to have the same performance over time that cryptocurrency could right. if you get the right bets. Right. So that's, yeah, that's, how I'm kind of, that's how I'm kind of thinking of it. So you just heard from Barry and Rao about the case for Bitcoin. Now you'll hear from Roy about the case for gold. So, uh, you know, the subject matter at hand is, is the Drop Gold campaign around about May 1st. Um, there was a, a national ad campaign rolled out by Grayscale's management, ostensibly uh, telling investors to sell their holdings of bullion uh, and to buy Bitcoin through the Bitcoin trust. In a digital world, gold shouldn't weigh down your portfolio. You see where things are going. Digital currencies like Bitcoin are the future. They're secure, borderless, and unlike gold, they actually have utility. Leave the pack behind. It's time to drop gold. 
you had a pretty strong and immediate reaction to, to that uh, campaign. So can you tell me why uh, it's different to you than just another asset manager or trust company trying to get market share from another asset class? Yeah, well, it wasn't immediate, actually. I was hoping someone else would do it. Um, but about two months in or a month and a half in, I noticed that there weren't really well-articulated arguments on the other side. And I guess I just want to preface this with, I personally have nothing against Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. Uh, in fact, it's quite the opposite. I, I'm not only exposed to cryptocurrencies rising and Bitcoin specifically rising, but I am actually very sympathetic to the project of cryptocurrencies as reorienting a, a society back to sound money principles. So I don't really have a problem with the ethos of Bitcoin uh, or even Bitcoin being a successful project. I guess my issue stems from sort of seeing how these evangelists of Bitcoin um, try trying to humble us with their piety about you know this being the greatest thing ever and uh, rising and you know we're in it for the mission and we're in it for you know bringing down the fiat monetary system. Uh, all of a sudden, at some point, shifting from attacking the fiat money system as a problem to uh, noticing the sort of $8 trillion of gold, of precious metals, that have been uh, held in exchange and transferred for thousands of years as, as being some kind of a low-hanging fruit funnel into the flow demand of Bitcoin. And to me, that was a red flag that required some sort of response um, because it, it's, it sort of feels to me like some kind of a, a Oedipal revolt uh, you know, a, a revolt uh, against the father, where, where gold is the father. Uh, it's very difficult to me from where I sit with the knowledge that I have acquired to see how you could argue that Bitcoin um, not only displaces gold, uh, but succeeds without gold. And to me, I've always seen um, the two in this potato sack race uh, against the fiat money system. So you've you firmly got your feet in both both camps. Um, you know you're hoping that Bitcoin actually becomes more anti-fragile through through the debate and discourse um, you know that you've initiated. For those that haven't you know read the paper, let's just get a little bit into the nitty gritty of of that. You discuss you know the crux of the matter is basically the difference between the natural physics of gold and the mathematical abstraction of Bitcoin. Can you go a little bit more into, into the differences? Yeah, so the way I look at the world uh, in terms of an economy is I, I actually like to use the word, word cooperation, human cooperation. And at the end of the day, um, the reason I think that we're able to make predictions and cooperate is because the laws of nature, laws of physics, whatever you want to call them, are immutable. Uh, uh, they're, they're irreversible and they're immutable, and they never change. And because they never change, we're able to essentially observe, measure, predict, and repeat various activities uh, between each other as we seek to cooperate and achieve prosperity. Now, in that regard, there is a fundamental distinction between the things that are external to my mind, that are corporeal, that I can ingest through my sense perceptions, that I can see, that I can touch, that I can hear, that I can taste, and things that are entirely uh, an abstraction, where I'm employing my memory, the interior of my mind, and perhaps a language like mathematics, to communicate something to me or to you. And where this ultimately manifests is in the relationship between uh, the thermodynamic relationship of energy and entropy. And so what we find is that 
things that are from the mind that are abstractions or of memory uh, generally don't last. They're, they're ideations, they're trends, uh, you know, very academic term, but logical pluralism. Uh, there is no definite truth. Whereas things that are of nature are the, are the lodestars. They're the polaris that allows us to cooperate. They're the sun, so to speak. Now, when it comes to the difference between uh, an element, which is corporeal, and something like Bitcoin, what you essentially have to understand is that the element doesn't need anything other than the laws of physics to exist. Whereas Bitcoin is, a, is an abstraction, it's a system where humans come together and decide to allocate resources towards the uh, reification of this abstraction so that it continues to perpetuate into the future. If, if humans do not cooperate towards that goal, uh, that abstraction ceases to exist. Where this really comes together is if you consider that the economy uh, has these corporeal elements like Legos, and we take these building blocks and we build modular systems of cooperation to use them. But these building blocks are always fungible and, and, and they can always be moved from different activities that we do. Now our, our goal when we cooperate is not to just exchange Bitcoins or exchange Legos with each other, it's to, it's to use the Legos to build a resilient, prosperous society. So when you look at something like gold, it's, it's definitely a Lego in the system, but it's a Lego that I can use for different things to do different things. I can move it around. It, the, the fact that it's a Lego is based on the laws of physics. With Bitcoin, what I have to do is I have to go somewhere in the corner and take a lot of pieces of Legos just to maintain a new system of Legos to do new things with it. Uh, and, and that's where the fundamental distinction is between the natural order, the natural world, and things that are abstractions. And when it comes to Bitcoin, that distinction has become quite difficult for many people to appreciate because of a combination of the language that's used to describe what's happening with Bitcoin, uh, misnomers such as mining, um, you know, ideas such as forgeably scarce, uh, scarcity, um, and, and I think that where you have to really understand this is that Bitcoin is not being mined, it's being powered into existence. So essentially, all of these resources are being channeled into Bitcoin in a way that perpetuates its own existence. Whereas the gold itself is indeed being mined once, and then once you mine it, it lasts forever. It survives into the future. It doesn't rely on the same miner that mined it in the past. And you know, I'm sure we can, we can get into more, more details about this, but, but this is really what it comes down to. And I, and I find many of the Bitcoin evangelists just have a problem even getting past that point. They, they simply don't believe it to be true. Um, but of course, it, it is true. It's just an unfortunate fact. And, and I, can, I can quote some more uh, reasons why. Okay, so we can get back to you know, the, the real differences between you know, gold mining and, uh, and Bitcoin mining. Um, in a moment. And I think we should also touch on the, the decay aspect of, of Bitcoin. I think that's a very important topic. Um, first, maybe let's address some of the claims um, that are made in the, you know, the drop gold campaign. Um, you know, that gold is, is heavy, that it occupies uh, a lot of space. It doesn't have the value density that Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is weightless and, and uh, 
uh, and so forth. I think you've you've proven that those are you know verifiably false. Can you just go through a couple of those and then we'll get into you know decay and yeah and very quickly. So you know in the advertorial campaign you see people holding gold, uh, which essentially um, misrepresents the weight of the gold. Now this is very important because those Legos that I mentioned earlier, those corporeal elements, they have. Uh, uh, immutable properties that, that are accessible to us through time that never change. And so we know that of the 90 natural elements uh, that, that, that occur naturally, um, gold has the highest uh, specific gravity, which means that it condenses into a volumetric space and becomes heavier and heavier and heavier relative to everything else. So in the advertorial, you see you know, a guy essentially carrying two bars of gold, uh, but those uh, bars of gold would weigh 220 pounds, and you know he's effortlessly walking around with them. That's impossible. No one could actually carry gold that way. Uh, moreover, uh, we're talking about uh, you know 10, 20 million dollars of gold that this person would be holding. So, so the misrepresentation begins by saying it's this shiny metal that's heavy, uh, but in reality. Uh, that value density, the, 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 the amount of energy embodiment that went into producing the gold is why it's worth so much. And in fact, no other piece of Lego in the system could do that. No other, no other corporeal element could store so much energy in such a small amount of volumetric space. So, so that's one. And then when I actually try to uh, figure out how much volumetric space does Bitcoin take up, uh, I discovered that it takes up an incredible amount of volumetric space when you consider uh, the, the mining rigs, when you consider the transformers, the physical space that's required to actually run these servers that are constantly uh, solving the mathematical puzzles. Um, you know, you end up with a, a difference in ratio of 500 to 5,000 times, depending on how you look at it. And that's when you're comparing all the gold in the world worth $8 trillion to all the Bitcoin in the world today, which is worth about $200 billion. So, so the idea that this Bitcoin that you're using on your smartphone um, has, has no kind of impact or footprint in the physical corporeal world, that it's purely digital, is, is false. It's cognitive dissonance. In fact, it's taking up an incredible amount of energy, uh, physical footprints, resources, and, and ecological opportunity costs because it's requiring a continued investment in the reification of this abstraction so that the bits of Bitcoin, which are just symbols, uh, are worth any more or, or act any different than any other bits of symbols that I could just write with my pen and paper. So what are we talking about on, a, you know, on a, an annual basis? What does it cost to, to actually run the Bitcoin network? So I was very nice to Bitcoin in this exercise. All I did was calculate the amount of energy, because uh, I always try to think about things thermodynamically. And so if you look at um, the latest hash rate of the network, it's about 65,000 petahashes. Uh, it would require 6,600 uh, megawatts to um, keep that system going. 24-7, uh, that results in about $7.5 billion a year of electricity at wholesale rates. So that's essentially the cost of electricity to society is seven and a half billion dollars. Then you have to look at the mining rigs. Um, it would require about four million mining rigs to run at 65,000 petahashes. So when you calculate the cost of the mining rigs, again, if I, even if I'm being very nice to Bitcoin at $500, $600, um, you're talking about another two or three billion dollars. 
And the mining rigs have generally lasted for three to four years. So I was externized to Bitcoin. I use a six-year amortization uh, schedule, depreciation schedule. And in that, in that regard, you're, you're looking at about $10 billion um, before you get into labor costs, rent costs, things like that. So, so that's your decay, that's your theta bleed in option parlance. And, and that $10 billion a year is, is owed to the miners by the owners of the coin. Uh, and so when you look at the coin, even today when it's valued at $13,000, that's about $220 billion of market value. You have a monetary system which is worth $220 billion that's costing about 4 to 5% a year just to perpetuate its own existence year over year. Uh, that to me is uh, worse than a, you know, any negative yielding, yielding bond because it's, it's telling you that the uh, only way this works long term is for the price to keep rising. But it's also introducing a lot of other arguments that perhaps we can get into that I've, I've reflected on lately uh, with regards to whether Bitcoin is a security. So that's an interesting, uh, an interesting question. You know, how is, how is Bitcoin a security? How isn't it a security? I think that the regulators, I mean, one thing I've noticed in general, like running gold money, and we used to have a cryptocurrency operation that we exited uh, three months ago, uh, is I think there's this gulf, like a value gap between what's going on in Silicon Valley and perhaps with a few of these companies in the United States like Coinbase. And what I'm seeing with regulators all over the world, and I think that they're that these companies in the U.S. are presently taking advantage of an arbitrage, a regulatory arbitrage. So, for example, everyone believes that the SEC's white paper has set in stone the definition of what cryptocurrencies are securities, uh, especially because one of the SEC uh, commissioners, Clayton, said some things about it. Um, I believe that the jury's still out on this one. I think there's a lot of room for uh, f uh, the Treasury Department, for the Department of Justice, for FinCEN, and even for Congress to step in and reassess those arguments, especially as this thing uh, continues to um, disrupt the economic order. But from where I sit, um, I see regulators at the very early stages of trying to figure out what this is, and at this stage being very unhappy with what they see. It's, it's not compatible with the financial services ethos that have guided um, the financial industry for the last 40 or 50 years, but most specifically after 2008. And I think that some of this is going to get caught up uh, with, with the industry in the next few years. So when it comes down to it being a security, well, if the miners, and, and I'm not sure if you're aware, but when this thing started out, nobody that you would have talked to uh, that was a Bitcoin evangelist or, or proponent, and, and I went back and I looked at my emails and notes, would have thought that at 65,000 petahash, the price of Bitcoin would only be $13,000. In other words, that, that level of decay relative to the nominal value of, of the coins is, is too high. Uh, it, it should have been much higher. So, so in a way, something's wrong with the design. Now, because this is the state of affairs, one has to ask themselves, what am I really doing when I'm buying a Bitcoin? Am I really buying something that's immutable? Or 
am I investing an amount of money to essentially buy an issuance of coins from a miner? Because the miner is literally issuing the coins and then distributing the coins through sale at an exchange. The, the miner can't buy energy from a utility company with bitcoins. At the end of the day, the, the taxes have to be paid with a fiat currency. So you always have that uh, requirement to convert the bitcoins. So the miner is mining the coins, selling them through the mechanisms of the exchange, distributing this, this, this thing, this security, this instrument, which is then bought by a purchaser. Well, what is that purchaser buying? If you have a 5% decay rate, which is implicit, it's written into the code uh, at these prices, well, then the, the, the purchaser is essentially giving the miner a bunch of money up front in the hopes that the miner will keep running the system indefinitely. And I think that at the least, a regulator, it, 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 isn't, it isn't too crazy to, to believe that at some point a regulator may say, well, I have a handful of miners because of this natural monopoly that has developed uh, that essentially control 51% or more of the hash rate. So if they want to, if they're not getting incentivized, the same way an executive isn't getting paid uh, uh, to perform their function, you know, they could, they could argue, they, could, they have the bargaining power in this, in this equation to essentially enforce that at some point in the future, the person that bought a Bitcoin in the past has to pay more. And it could be done through fees, it could be done by literally forking, as we've seen uh, was done by Jihan Wu, the owner of, of uh, Bitmain, uh, with Bitcoin Cash. But if that risk exists, arithmetically, uh, philosophically, I could see regulators coming together and saying, look, even though these miners claim to be decentralized, and by the way, I don't believe anything is decentralized, uh, but, but if, even if these miners believe them, themselves to be decentralized, they're working in Congress in an industry, uh, no different than a, a pricing control board. They're incentivized to work together. So in a way, they are an organization. And this organization is issuing these instruments with the intent to make a profit. Now they can either make a profit through uh, fees, salaries, or through appreciation, so the equivalent of like stock options or equity compensation. Well, I at least want them to disclose that when they sell these securities, there are certain risk factors. It's very similar to an insurance scheme or a pension scheme. And one of the realizations that I've had the last few weeks since the drop gold campaigns, and so I really got down to the, the nitty gritty with this, is I honestly think the regulators missed that. I, I don't think, I think in the first run pass, the regulators didn't realize how mining works and how integral it is to the process. Um, because if the miners don't continue to do this, then the hash power decreases. And if the hash power decreases, we know that it becomes a choke on the ability for the price to increase, the utility of the coin to work, the transaction speeds, everything falls apart. And in the worst case, if we're thinking about tail risks, you can get what you saw with Ethereum uh, cl Classic recently, where you get just a full-on 51% attack. Someone comes in and, and mines a bunch of fake blocks, and then you've got to fork it again. So, so these are real issues. Um, I, I really believe the regulators have not fully wrapped their mind around it, but when they do, I think that they will ultimately um, decide that the miners are the issuers of the security and that the Bitcoin itself is clearly not this commodity. It's clearly not a currency. It's a security. 
because, because there is a common enterprise here. I'm buying the Bitcoin because someone has made two promises to me. One, that the Bitcoin will be around in 10, 20, 30 years. And two, that if I pay this fee, I will make some sort of a return. And, and I think that I've seen things that are far less complicated than that be regulated. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that at 200 billion or so, you know, market cap, it's already, you know, it's a significant size currency. Um, it seems to me that, you know, the, the on and off rails for, uh, you know, crypto and, and Bitcoin are fiat. And it seems to me that um, the owners of the exchanges and the, and the miners are individuals and they're sovereign. What's the what's the distributed borderless aspect of, of Bitcoin? Because I don't understand. It's just the regulatory arm. I, I really think a good analog is the file sharing phenomena in the late 90s. And so when I started file sharing when I was a young boy, you know, I used to use Kazaa and I used to use all these systems like Napster. And we've seen that entire industry uh, you know, be be destroyed. It, it's it's now a, a legal industry with Spotify and uh, and Apple Music and things like that. So, I I think especially when you see something like Libra coming now, you really are making a bet with Bitcoin, which is again a bet that I like. I like this bet against the system. I would like to see the fiat money system brought down to its core, um, which is why I say it's a potato sack race. But but when you own Bitcoin, the problem here is you can't just buy the Bitcoin, turn it into a bracelet and wait or hold it in your hand. You're, you're still betting on these centralized miners doing what they say they're going to do. So, yeah, I don't really think it's decentralized. And I think it's, it would be very easy. I think if you look at all the nodes, it's like 10,000 nodes. And, and the majority of the nodes are in the United States. And, and just so you know, like the, the block size is 580 gigabytes right now. So we're, that's the block height. So... We're, we're, we're looking at like 10,000 computers that have a hard drive somewhere with 580 gigs on it and probably 12 mining pools or mining companies that control 51%. This would be much easier to control tax, regulate than file sharing, uh, what they did with Napster or any of the other uh, torrent systems. So yeah, it's not, it's not decentralized. I think Nouriel Roubini has actually done a great job of pointing that out to people uh, but, but again, this digital world, uh, young people especially growing up entirely in the service economy in the digital world, they, they don't realize that when they order food from Uber Eats, uh, that food has to be grown somewhere, transported, cold stored, uh, cooked, prepared, physically moved. There's an energy, uh, metabolic energy cost all along the way. And that the service layer at best is uh, communication or information. And that can be important, and there can certainly be secular trends, and moreover, it can even manifest in beautiful ways, unpredictable ways. Uh, but it can never replace the causation, the, the, the chain of causation in terms of what comes first in that Lego edifice, the foundation. And in this case, um, it would be super easy, I think, to shut this down or to regulate it or to tax it. And it's certainly not as anti-fragile as uh, the, the evangelists uh, like to proclaim. You can check out both full interviews on realvision.com and our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.